All right. We're going to um, today get back into the Romans 9 study that we just started. Romans 9, we started that class, and if you haven't listened to it because you were not at that time listening, go back, listen to that one, that first um, study on Romans 9. Because in that, we talked about the advantage that Paul states was possessed by the Jews. Um, What Paul understood to be the significance of being Israelites, being Jews, because many of us would say there's no real prophet, but there, there is. There's a great prophet to being a Jew, according to Paul. However, it wasn't what we think. To the Jews' mindset, and we may repeat this as we go a little today, but in the Jewish mindset, their advantage was the fact that they possessed the revelation of God, the law, the commandments, that they had it, they lived by it, that that proved that they were the people of God. They were the chosen. They were the ones that had the oracles of God. And Paul agrees that having the oracles of God gave them great advantage, but it wasn't in Paul's understanding now as one in whom Christ is living, one who is born again, one who has had Christ revealed in him. Paul understands that the significance of being called an Israelite was not just The advantage was not just that they had the law in contrast to the Gentiles and that that made them special and that made them righteous and that that made them holy, you know, with, with regard to having the law, doing it, having sacrifices, having the priesthood, having to the Jews, having that in their midst as part of their structure and their makeup was what set them apart separated them from the world. The superficiality of doing what the law said, keeping the ordinances and the rituals. Now, I don't say superficial in a flippant way. I am trying to differentiate between external things and internal things. So I say superficial being that it's skin deep only. It it hits the surface and that's it. It's never able to affect the internal part or the internal condition or state of men. So it is merely superficial. However, divinely inspired it was, and it was divinely inspired and given of God. However, it in itself was not the intent, just the possession of it. Paul understood that the prophet, and we looked at the word prophet and what it meant, was to actually be of some use and and advantage as to accomplish something or to gain something. Paul understood that the real profit of them having the ordinance of God was that the ordinance of God, the oracles, not the ordinance, the oracles of God, which speaks of the commandments, speaks of the law, speaks of the scriptures, was that it was a prophetic thing. It was a prophecy given, a promise given to them regarding the coming of their Messiah. It was a promise and a prophecy concerning the coming of one who would live in them and be made unto them what the law testified of in spirit and truth. The law was merely a testimony. It was merely an outline, a picture, a sketch, and a pathway to guide them to its ultimate aim and conclusion. That they would now, in the coming of its end or conclusion, Christ the Messiah, they would be able to partake internally of that which was testified of in an external manner under the law and the Mosaic system. And we read this in the last class of saying, 
Paul. Now, all of this, you know, comes from uh, Romans 3, what profit, what advantage has the, has the Jew. And if you haven't heard that lesson again, I recommend you go back to that one. That's uh, the first, first Romans lesson. But then before he says that, he sets the stage in Romans 2 and begins talking to the Jews concerning their arrogance, basically, in believing that because they had the law, they were so much better than the Gentiles, who he's discussed in the first chapter of Romans. And he did it in very vivid ways. In, a, in, in ways that the church world today read and they still have the mindset of the Jews, thinking, oh, they do that stuff, man, they're really bad. Paul's point is, yes, they are. They're sinners. They're dead in sin, trespasses. They are corrupt because of the internal condition of the Adamic man, the headship of Adam, which he gets to in Romans 5. But the point is, Jews who believe they have some greater standing before God because they are law observers. Paul puts them in their place and says, who are you? Who do you think you are, you who judge? Are you any better? Because circumcision profits only if you are a keeper of the law. But if you are a breaker of the law, your circumcision is null and void. And in fact, you are on the same level as the uncircumcised. And he's doing this in the context of their supposed standard of righteousness by the law. And he's showing them you don't keep it anymore than you are not any more righteous than the Gentiles. Why? Because you cannot keep the law. It's impossible. Why? Verse 29 of Romans 2, he gets into it. And he begins from that moment on to speak of an internal matter where propitiation happens, where the true work of God takes place internally, bringing the soul into the liberty of being uh imputed with righteousness. This is Romans 3 and 4. He gets into all that. Confessing and, and showing, yes, all have sinned. All, Jew or Gentile. The law concludes it so. Falling short of the glory. But now we have a propitiation, the end of the law for righteousness to those who believe. Not those who do, but those who believe. Not those who work, but those who believe this is so overriding the exercises and rituals of the law into now a, a means and manner by which that which the law testified of, which was righteousness and perfection and holiness, can now be the internal possession of man by faith, through grace, or by grace through faith. Because in verse 29, now he says, he is a Jew who is one inwardly. Circumcision is of the heart, in the spirit, not in the letter. The real circumcision is not one that you can see the evidence of in flesh. The true circumcision is one that man through natural means cannot observe because it is of the heart. It is in spirit. It is of truth. It is a divinely orchestrated and imputed matter of God and not of men. It is a circumcision performed by God, not of men. It has nothing to do with the deeds of the letter of the law. It is a matter of spirit working in the heart of man and bringing man into a condition and a state of being where he is free from sin. And the whole time the law was there and men even applied it because God told them to. It was ordained by law to do so. Circumcised, all of that. Even Jesus comes on the eighth day to fulfill that part of it. However, 
the entirety of the, the, the testimony as even when that stands, the circumcision stands and every other ordinance, it pointed to something greater. And the greater thing it pointed to was always a matter of heart and spirit, an internal thing, not an external thing. And because the reality of the new, that to which the old, if we're going to use the words old and new, then the reality of it to which the law pointed was always presenting something that was not meant or even capable of garnering the praise of men, but of God. Why? Because men were not going to be able to see, observe, or understand it. Because it was not of men, it was not by men, it was of God and by God. That's period. And the advantage that Paul understood of the, having the law, <coughs> of being called an Israelite, was the fact that they possessed such a testimony that pointed to and testified of such an internal reality. No other nation on earth possessed it. <coughs> but it would not profit them. unless that which it pointed to came to be internally wrought and received by man through faith. Total dependence on God to do it and the grace of God to do what the power of men is incapable of doing. And that is plainly said in Hebrews 13, which is where we ended the last class. Verse 9, Be not carried about with diverse and strange doctrines, for it is a good thing. What are the diverse and strange doctrines? He's pointing back to the law. And he's calling them diverse and strange because he's pointing back to the diverse ways in which God spoke. He talks about in Hebrews 1, the many manifold ways that God utilized things and people and places and ordinances and laws and sacrifices and offerings to testify of a singular reality that is confirmed and amen and ultimately spoken in completion in one son. To go back to those things, those external elements, those diversity of things, uh, touch not, taste not, handle not, go back to Colossians, uh, festivals, holy days, all of those things, those are diverse things to which men have set their hope for righteousness to actually be achieved. And they're strange doctrines because they're alien from the true. They're alien from what God has ushered in in the new covenant in his son. So don't be carried about with those strange and diverse doctrines because it's a good thing that the heart, listen to where he points it, not that men's actions be uh, brought under control. That's good. That's a wonderful thing. Self-control. But self-control is not the end of the matter. That's not the issue. That's part. But the heart is where God's work, where the spiritual thing that the external things pointed to actually must take place and does take place. And if you're born again, has and is taking place. What I mean is when you're born again, it has taken place in completeness and we are ever in heart and understanding in the heart growing in the knowledge of that grace that has been bestowed. It's a good thing the heart be established, settled, with grace, not with meats. Meats refers to the to the ordinances of the law. Meats and drinks and holy days, as he says in Colossians. 
why is the one better than the other? Because that's the whole concept of, of Hebrews, right? The one's better than the other. The good thing comes to supersede and excel the other thing. Because if the first thing brought perfection, brought an end, brought the thing that God was actually after, then there would be no reason to be seeking for another. But the whole point was the, the other was always the point. It was always the intent. First the natural, then afterward the spiritual. It's a good thing the heart be established with grace. Because that's the only way, listen to me, that's the only way the heart can actually be established or be settled or fixed and anchored, built. Because the heart is not affected by meats, drinks, holy days, circumcisions. None of that, although it looks good externally, and was the ordinance God gave for an external testimony that was for time because God understood it was temporary because the heart was the thing he was always after and the grace of God was the only way that the heart finally becomes a partaker of this because meats cannot go there rituals cannot proceed to the depth of the heart to affect it. That's why he says, meats have not profited. There's the thing. What profit is there? Much in every way. Much in every way. Great profit in having meats and drinks and holy days. Great profit in being circumcised. Great profit in having the tabernacle and the priesthood and all of the things that pertain to it. Great profit in it. Why? Because it pointed to, spoke of, gave a great beautiful testimony of, in an external beautiful way, of what could finally be possessed and imputed to the heart, possessed by and imputed to the heart, so that the heart, by grace, could now be established upon the foundation of God, not just waiting on a promise, but established upon the confirmed basis. The confirmation be established and anchored in the real thing. Because those meats and drinks and all the superficials of the testimony, although valid for a moment in time and divinely inspired, have not profited those who are occupied in it. What does that mean? They're occupied in it, and hey, they may think there's great profit because they feel themselves righteous by it. They assume they're holy because of it. But the profit is always about the heart. You see that? The real advantage is that the heart is capable of being affected, changed, transformed, transitioned from death to life, from sin to righteousness. There's the advantage of having the law because the law was the means to bring us as a schoolmaster to this great grace by which and in which the heart could actually be an established thing, established and anchored in Christ, who is made unto us what the law testified of, but could not facilitate the achievement of. Now, the next verse here in Hebrews 13, which we did not get into or go into, speaks even further to this. He says, we, speaking of the believer, we have an altar whereof they, speaking of the Jews under the law, those who are trying 
to keep the law still and trying to get these believers to come back under the law, we believers, through grace, by faith, we have an altar where they have no right to eat. They have no right to eat of it who serve the tabernacle, who are trying to stay faithful to the law, keep it, touch not, taste not, handle not, and sacrifices and offerings and circumcision. Those who are occupied therein, they have no right to eat the altar that we have and are partaking of. For the bodies of those beasts whose blood is brought into the sanctuary by the high priest for sin are burned without the camp. Listen, wherefore Jesus also, that he might sanctify the people with his own blood, suffered without the gate. Now, what is that talking about? Because again, it speaks of that internal heart-effecting work that the meats and the drinks and the offerings under the system of the law could not facilitate, could not bring about. But see, we now, by faith, through grace, have an altar that we can partake of, and those who are still under that system and try to serve it day and night, as Paul would say in, in, in uh, Acts before King Agrippa, they have no right to it because they're trusting in those things for the remission of their sins, for a right standing with God to actually be achieved. Because what he's saying here, pointing to the bodies of the beasts whose blood was brought into the sanctuary, and that, you know, having it was burned outside the camp, what he's talking about is, this is uh, part of Adam Clark's commentary. He says, though in making covenants and in some victims offered according to the law, the flesh of the sacrifice was eaten by the offerers, yet in the flesh of the sin offering, no man could eat. For as eating the other sacrifices intimated that they were made partakers of the benefits that were that were procured by those sacrifices. So, not being permitted to eat of the sin offering proved that they had no benefit from that offering and that they must yet look to the Christ who is actually by that sacrifice being pointed out that they might receive the actual, receive the actual pardon of sin, the real pardon of sin, which is by the shedding of his blood alone. You see that? That's why. They couldn't eat of this. They couldn't eat of the sin offering because under that system, we're talking about something that is internal here, something internal that has to be affected by once and for all sacrifice, can't be truly affected under a testimony. And that is the taking away of sin, the removal of sin as a state of being. That sin could only be removed by the work of Christ on the cross, the altar that God sets up. Not just a testimonial altar, but the real true altar. So while they continued offering the sacrifices and they refused to acknowledge the true once and for all sacrifice for sin of the Messiah, they had no right to any of the blessings procured by that offering. Meaning, they could not benefit from it. Meaning, they could not be freed from an internal state of sin and death. They could keep on doing the things outward, but they could not inwardly have their heart affected by the removal of the state of sin. Paul is not downplaying the significance of the actual altar and the sacrifices under the system uh, of the law. That's not what's happening. In fact, at the beginning of Hebrews 11, or Hebrews, uh, the letter, you, you see, he gives God 
the credit for all of it. He says, this is God's doing. God who spoke in these matters. In Matthew 5, he's not coming to take away or destroy the law of the prophets. He's showing that those things, beautiful as they are, divinely oriented and instigated as they are, always spoke of a better, greater, spiritual conclusion that was to be received internally in the heart by a work of grace. And the law was always a testimony of just that. Always. And he's showing here the true distinction between the two. This is part of what we would call rightly dividing the word of truth. Showing the distinction between law and grace, works and faith, natural flesh and spirit. And he's showing the distinction between the two and the necessity of leaving the one by partaking of the reality imputed by the other that exceeds the first in substance and reality. It exceeds it. It's much greater, better than. We have an altar they cannot eat of. Why? Because to eat of it, to eat of that altar, is a product of partaking of him. It is a product of grace, not works. Because it is by grace that the heart becomes established. The grace of God establishes the heart. The law continues to propel the heart onward. It's what it was meant to do. It condemns man because of who he is, but it propels the heart onward so that that heart can finally receive and partake and have imputed to it the life and the righteousness of which it speaks. That was always the point. That's why no man could ever do it perfect. Or, better said, no man could ever fulfill the perfection described therein because in the midst of it all every word every jot every tittle of it was set there by God maybe a bad word to use but was set there by God to incentivize man's heart to look on beyond it to the one of whom it speaks. Because in it you find you can't do it. But it's speaking of something. It's speaking of righteousness. And that, we've talked about it already, that frustration was there meant by God to make the heart of men Move forward, move on, look for his coming, seek his coming, so that in his coming they would receive him and partake of him as the life, as the righteousness that they could not under that system ever attain. And this is uh, another commentary that says the same thing, Matthew Henry he says, uh, under the Jewish law, no part of the sin offering was to be eaten, but all must be burnt outside the camp while they dwelt in tabernacles and without the gates when they dwelt in cities. Now, if they were still subject to the law, they cannot eat at the gospel altar. For that which is eaten there is furnished from Christ, who is the greatest sin offering or the great sin offering. And this is what John says when Jesus is baptized, right? Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. 
That's a huge point being made there. It's that work that he came to do. The work of the altar that actually brings about an internal change. Not just an outward adherence to law, but an internal change from death to life, not from good, bad works to good works, but from death to life that the the law would not and could not facilitate, could not bring about. And we, because of that sacrifice, as those who by grace have come to receive Christ through faith, we partake of, internally apprehend the efficacious nature of that once and for all altar. Therefore, Jesus would come, say, John 6, 54, Whoso eateth my flesh and drinks my blood, here's the eating of the altar. Here's the partaking of the altar that we have right to now as believers. He that eateth my flesh and drinks my blood, he has eternal life. Not just one day, no, he partakes of me. It internalizes the promises, makes the thing an internal reality. Life has come to that soul. And I'll raise him up in the last day. The day, <laughs> the day of the Lord that has come, the day of the Lord that all the prophets promised, that all the, that the law pointed to, that great day where the day star has arisen. We are children of that day, having eaten his flesh, drinking his blood. That is being born again. We have this eternal life in the day of the Lord. And he goes on in verse 55, for my flesh is meat indeed. My blood is drink indeed. That's true drink, true meat. He that eats my flesh, drinks my blood, dwelleth in me and I in him. That's being born Again, that's when we internalize the work of the altar and become participants and partakers in that work. And the heart becomes established in reality. For as the living Father has sent me and I live by the Father, so he that eats me, even he shall live by me. Let's not put that off and say, man, we've still got to do this so that we can live, so that we can do No, no. What you're saying is if eating his flesh and drinking his blood is something still future, then we are not partakers of eternal life, and we don't live by him. See, he is the bread which came down from heaven, he says, not as your fathers ate manna and died. He that eats me the bread of life that comes from heaven, shall live forever. Again, the soul, he's speaking internally because those people died physically. He's talking of the heart being now affected in truth by the spirit partaking of that reality. Here's the participation. The grace of, wrought participation that brings the altar from the outside to the inside and makes the soul a partaker of the full work of that sacrifice, which is taking away sin, imputing life. Paul understood this is the reason being Israelites. This is the reason having the law, the oracles of God, was actually profitable. Not because they had possession of them as a physical thing, as a dictate of natural life and daily life. That's not what it was about. The reason he would say it is the advantage, they have much advantage in every way, is because he realized the advantage was due to the fact that it, 
The law, the oracles of God that they had in their possession was a divine prophetic testimony created to bring them to the entirety or the surety or the sureness of a prophetic age fulfilled. Or we could say it the way Peter says it. The word of God made sure. The word of the prophets made sure. Moses was a prophet too. Everything he wrote was prophetic because Jesus himself says he testified and wrote of me. So Paul's admittance that the Jews had a significant advantage is not what they thought. He knew the true significance of the words that he wrote who are Israelites even if they did not. He knew it. He knew the true significance of those words when they did not because he had tasted of that age of which the law spoke. He is now tasting of the substance unto which it pointed. He was a partaker inwardly in the heart of the true and ultimate significance of being an Israelite. Because he understands now that all that it talked about, all that it prophesied, all that it was about, given of God, was so that Christ would come and inwardly dwell and be made unto men all spiritual realities. That the heart of men could be free from corruption and partakers of incorruption. Now, according to Calvin's commentary, he says that by oracles, Paul means here when he says they've been given the oracles of God, and this referring back to Romans 3, he says by this he means the covenant which God revealed first to Abraham and to his posterity and afterwards sealed and unfolded by the law and the prophets, meaning the whole of the scripture, everything in it. And this correlates to what we've been seeing or, and, and, and talking about in Psalms 119, that the oracles of God, the law, the word, the scriptures, speak of, of the written testimony, the law, the prophets, but this reaches beyond just their possession, again, of a divine revelation in contrast to what the Gentiles had, which was nothing. Having no hope, having none of that. We'll talk about that as we get into the things he enumerates here, covenant adoption. The advantage ultimately was the promise embodied in those words. Gave them great advantage over those who didn't have such a divine revelation. Even Paul would say, Romans 1, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. It's the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Jesus says, John chapter 4, verse 22, you worship what you know, have not known. We worship what we have known because salvation is of the Jews. In the Young's literal translation, it says the salvation is of the Jews. See? It's promised, declared through the word of God given first to the Jews. The beauty of it. Paul understood. Paul understood the greatness of this. He did not just say, hey, we have a law, we're better, we're holier because we have a law. No, he's, he's partaking of the internalness, the heart-changing effect, the internal consequence of the significance that the law actually had as a partaker of Christ in his heart. Barnes notes, according to this in John 4.22, what we just read of Jesus saying, salvation is of the Jews. He writes, they have the true religion, true form of worship, and the Messiah who will bring salvation. That Messiah is to proceed out from them. Jesus thus affirms that the Jews had the true form of the worship of God. At the time, he was sensible 
however, to know that they, by their traditions, had corrupted it, and on various occasions reproved them for it. That's true. They had a form of worship. The true form, the truest of forms, the only form of true worship. But look at what Paul says to them in Romans 2. Behold, thou art called a Jew, and rest in the law, and make your boast of God, and know his will, and approvest the things that are more excellent, being instructed out of the law. Thou art confident that you are a guide of the blind, a light of them which are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish and of babes, because you have a form of knowledge and of the truth in the law. See? This shows the ultimate answer here. It says, you rest, you make your boast in it. You know his will. You approve the things that are more excellent, being instructed out of the law. What does that mean? To approve the things is not just approve it like you're giving some moral assent to it. The, I approve this. No, it's about an intellectual assent that the things that you possess, that means the things that you possess as law possessors, as those who have the law in, in contradiction and contrast to the Gentiles that the things that you possess as those who have the law are more excellent. They're greater. They're much more significant, div divinely significant. And you make your boast in that because you're instructed out of the law and you think because you have the law, you're holier, you're more righteous, you're more godly. You have right to every inheritance, all of it. And look at you look at the things that are more excellent than what, what, what the, the phrase here more excellent. If you look at it in the Greek, the word actually denotes the things that differ from other things. They're different. Not just different, but they excel the other things. Barnes note says that the reference here is when he says these things more right, is to the rites and the customs, to the distinctions of meats and holy days prescribed by the law of Moses. So the Jews looked at it as more excellent things. Isn't that funny? He goes on to say that the law would pride, that the Jew who had the law would pride himself on the fact that he had been taught by the law to make these distinctions while all the pagan world had been left in ignorance of them and without the possession of them, this was one of the advantages on which he valued himself and his religion. He boasted in it because those were the more excellent things, holy days, festivals, circumcision, tabernacle, priesthood, made them holier, perfect, righteous in the sight of God because they possess the things that are more excellent. Things that surpassed. It's funny to me when you read that definition because this, right, this, this is exactly what Paul is telling them. That while the Jews held to this assumption, this this opinion that their superficial, again, using that word, superficial external superiority, they held to that, their external superficial superiority over the Gentiles. They didn't see it that way, but that's what it was. They held to it. They boasted in their superiority over the Gentiles because they saw that the possession of the adherence to the law as more excellent things. Things that they have not nothing, know nothing about, and they have no right to it. Isn't that funny? Because the law actually was a testimony of a hidden reality that was coming, and that now has come in Christ. But the law was a testimony and and declared in many ways and diverse manners the more excellent 
the exceeding things, the things that were of greater significance and value. Those excellent things was not the things themselves. The more excellent, the things that excelled and exceeded was not the things themselves. Circumcision in the flesh, uh, the, the having of holy days and the actual sacrificing of animals and the offerings of, of the tabernacle and the priesthood where the there was constantly when one would die another would come in do you understand those things were not the more excellent things although the Gentile, Jews boasted in their having those things because in their mind those were the more excellent things Paul however understood because he was now an internal partaker of the more excellent things. So much so that he could talk about in Corinthians the first and the second, the things of the law and the things of Christ, and he could say those things had a glory, but up against this that I now have in Christ, that Christ is now made and imputed into my soul, they have no glory at all. Due to what? due to the glory that excelleth and exceeds. While they boasted in more excellent things, Paul boasted in the true, intended, exceeding things that the law pointed to. So he could say, I count those all as dumb, having no value, having no worth. Although I did at one time, I can count it now, as having no value. They're not excellent. They're not exceeding. They are nothing because I have received him, the exceeding riches the excellency of the knowledge of Christ himself. That is dung. That is nothing to be thrown outside of the camp. If you want the, the, the same analogy of being put outside the camp, the dung put outside the camp as a contaminating thing. That's what he's looking at. This to be held to is, is going to contaminate because I've received the more excellent thing internally having at one time boasted externally of those things, thinking and assuming, because I thought they were gained to me, thinking they were excellent. See what he's, see the contrast he's making. See, Paul, because of this, as again, the whole point of Romans 9 and 10 is the lamenting for his brethren the Israelites, the Jews, his brethren in the flesh, because he wanted them to be, as it comes down to this, that they might be saved. Why? Because it is at that moment, it is in that work of the Spirit, where they were allowed inwardly to come away from those false assumptions of that which was excellent, and internally partake of the much more exceeding substance of spirit and truth, of Christ himself. See, that's what the law always pointed to, something greater, something more excellent, something more wonderful than it could ever show in the manifold ways it showed as a testimony of Christ, that demonstrated Christ in testimony, it could not even come close. Because it actually spoke of things beyond man's ability to even imagine it. And this goes back to what we've talked about in Psalms 119, verse 18. He says, open my eyes that I may behold wondrous things out of your law. 
And the word wondrous or that phrase or the word wondrous there actually means things to be marveled at, to be surpassing or extraordinary or to things that are exceeding difficult things, things beyond one's power. See that? That was always what the law was about. The oracles given to the Jews by God declared in testimony, in testimonial capacity, the exceeding, wondrous, surpassing reality, predetermined to be God's will in the coming of the Son of His love. Things that are beyond the power of men. Things that are beyond our capacity to even think or ask. This shows us the utter, the true sense of, of Paul's mourning for his brethren. God had given them everything. He gave them a surpassing word that promised the only divine substance and wealth that man could ever possess. But the great majority of them refused him. However, it belonged to them first. Yet, they held to a form. They held to the form of knowledge and truth. They would not come to the spiritual conclusion and consummation at which that form aimed. See, Paul recognized the significance, the immensity of the dignity of those who were called Israelites. Again, even when they did not. Because his understanding of the dignity of being those who had the oracles of God, who had God's perfect and righteous law, was not the possession of it as a regulating principle, but the divine prophetic intention to which it pointed, because Paul was experiencing that prophetic intention internally. His heart was now established in it as a present truth, and thereby was, by faith, partaking of the very things that those under the law anticipated that they would attain by law observation. He was exceed, He was understanding the exceedingness of it, the exceeding nature of it was that it was Christ in him and not him at all. And that's why before King Agrippa, he would come and say, listen, I am saying nothing to these folk who want to kill me and bring you, bring me before you right now. I'm saying nothing to them but what prophet, the prophets and Moses said would come to pass. Every offering, every time blood was shed, every time the priest would stand before the Lord in the holiest of all, we are seeing a mosaic prophecy concerning the Messiah's death, burial, resurrection, to bring men from death into life, from sin to righteousness, to a standing before God that is procured by Christ and Christ alone. One man standing there holy, in whom all men rejoice and know to be their holiness unto God. Now, in Acts chapter 21, there's quite a misconception here. And this is the same misconception sometimes that, that's out there today. On the following day, this is Acts 21, verse 18. On the following day, Paul went in with us to James and all the elders were present. After greeting them, he related one by one the things that God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. And when they heard it, they glorified God, and they said to him, You see, brother, how many thousands there are among the Jews of those who have believed. They are all zealous for the law. They have been told about you. 
that you teach all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, telling them not to circumcise their children or walk according to our customs. What a misconception concerning the gospel of the new covenant. You hear that? They, they say that you te- teach and tell the Jews to forsake Moses. Now, let's connect this with what Paul said to Agrippa. I'm saying nothing to them. But what Moses and the prophets said was coming. That's Moses who wrote the law. Prophets, none of that contradicted. It all, in harmony, said he's coming. The death, burial, resurrection, the work of the cross, the true altar of God, all of it. I'm not telling them anything. Well, what they said was coming. Now, understand, Paul was not telling anyone to forsake Moses or the customs of the law. Paul was declaring the end of that age. He was declaring the intent of that testimony has come. He was declaring to them the actual reality of which Moses wrote, and that is Christ as the end of the law for righteousness to all who would believe. Believe. And that's why Jesus looks to the fathers himself and said, looks to the Pharisees, not the fathers. Jesus says to the Pharisees in John 5, do not think, this is verse 45, that, I'm, that I will accuse you unto the Father. There's already one who accuses you, and that is Moses, on whom you have set your hope. What a, man, What? that's hard. Moses is their accuser. The very one that they've latched their hopes on. Everything he wrote, every word he wrote, everything they, they had attached and hitched everything, all of their hopes and expectations upon everything he wrote. And now Jesus is saying, he's the one that accuses you. He's the one who condemns you before God, not me. How is that so? Well, it's the same thing he said concerning the Queen of Sheba to them and Jonah concerning. Because in the same light, they had refused the thing that those under the testimony actually came to. Queen of Sheba came to Solomon and saw the exceeding greatness of the wisdom and riches of Solomon. Jonah, when it, about the one in the belly of the whale or the fish, three days and three nights, and all of that, the connotations of that and the work that that speaks of, of the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. Moses the same way. He's your accuser because you will not lay hold of the one, me, of whom they speak. The one he wrote about. The one who is actually the embodiment of your hope that Moses laid out in everything he wrote. Man, our salvation is so great because it is a soul now being established in and being made a partaker of all that God said, promised, and intended. The very hope of an entire age fulfilled is what we call salvation. That's Christ in you. What a great salvation. That's more, much more than we can ask or think. Now, let's further this argument a little bit and then we'll we'll stop because I've gone far enough. John chapter 1 verse 11 verse 13. Now again, if you're not familiar where we're going, Romans 9, verse 1. I didn't even read it. I guess I should have. Um, well, 
I'm not going to do that. Just read Romans 9, 1 through 4. That's what I'm talking about. If you listen to the previous class, you know where we are. Because this is what it's about. It's about seeing that all of this was theirs. By promise, God offered it to them first. And Paul's lament is that they have refused it. They have rejected it. So in John chapter 1, verse 11, he came to his own. His own received him not. Again, that is his own things, the first part of that, the things that belonged to him and the people to which he belonged, they received him not. But as many as received him, to them gave he power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name, which were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. This is important because it doesn't just take man out of it. It's not just man no longer has a part of this. Look at the significance of these words. Because here what we're talking about, and Adam Clark points this out beautifully, he says, who were born not of blood, or uh, what we just read, he says, who were regenerated not of bloods, meaning the union of father and mother, or more specifically, of a distinguished or illustrious ancestry. See? For the Hebrew language makes use of the plural to point out the dignity or excellence of a thing. Probably by this the evangelist intends to show his countrymen that having Abraham and Sarah for their parents does not entitle them to the blessings of the new covenant. As no man could lay claim to those blessings, those inheritances, but in consequence of being born of God. How important is this? See, not one aspect of their illustrious ancestry, the thing that they would even joust with Jesus about. Abraham's our father. We've never been slaved to anybody, right? And what did he say? Before Abraham was, I am. He sought my day. He saw it and he rejoiced. That ancestry, as significant, as distinguished as it was, did not entitle them or give them right to any of the blessings of the new covenant. And know, just know this, the blessings of the new covenant are promises of the old covenant. You don't have two sets of things that are diametrically opposed and one group gets these and one group. No, the blessings of the new covenant are the promises of the old covenant fulfilled and imputed to us who are in Christ. Because all of those blessings are found in Christ. You don't have old covenant blessings and new covenant blessings. You have old covenant promises fulfilled, which are new covenant blessings. What a beautiful thing. Well, I've gone long enough. I'm going to stop there during this session. I hope this has clarified some things for some of you. Helped. I just want us to understand what Paul is saying here. The Just the beauty of the of the reality he's trying to convey to the church. He's not just combating the Jews and saying how bad they are. No, he's in the midst of all this. The whole point is to encourage the believer who have received by faith their salvation, their righteousness. Christ imputed to the soul, righteousness given as a gift, all of it. He is encouraging them in the truth of it all. And saying, they, these folk, who as we've talked before, are the ones persecuting you. They claim something because they have a law they believe gives them right to it. 
but they do not truly have any right to it because they are natural born Jews. You, being born of the Spirit, being born of the seed of God, having righteousness imputed as a gift, are the possessors of all the things they had given to them first as a promise and a testimony. You have it in its completion, in its fullness, in its true and proper form, and that is spirit, because you are in Christ. And I'm telling us today, if Christ is in you, your salvation, your relation to him is much greater than superficial things. It is not something you could slip in and slip out of. It is an actual divinely predetermined reality given to your soul, and your soul is established and anchored in it by the grace of God. We're not talking about frivolous things that we can slip in and slip out of, things that will we can drop on the floor and break into a thousand pieces. We're talking about a divine reality embodied in Christ himself that has been given to your soul through the presence of his beloved. And that beloved is made unto you all things. Spiritual growth is a soul coming to know the one who dwells in it. That's growth. That's spiritual growth. But the spiritual substantiation, the, the thing, the establishment of the soul happens instantaneously. It happens in a moment through the presence of Christ. And it needs no external things where you can get the praise of men. No, our salvation is that which gets the praise of God. It's something only God can see, appreciate, and understand. And the only way we can ever appreciate and understand it is that God would open our eyes that we may see and know as we are known by him. Thank you for listening, guys. I appreciate it very much. 